Ephesians chapter 1 in your Bible, I'm going to ask you to open to that place, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. Uh, by the way, uh, I think probably everybody knows this, but uh, children, I think it's time for you to head to Children's Church. Uh, if you haven't uh, made your way there uh, already, you can do that uh, now. Ephesians chapter 1, um, I want to read God's word over you in one of a couple of prayers that the Apostle Paul prays uh, in the book of Ephesians. It's really interesting. Uh, When a prayer finds its way into the canon of inspired scripture, that means it's God's prayer for us and it's his will for us. So we get to peel back the curtain and see what he would say to us. Paul, of course, is the human author but he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that means this is God's word for us, and we have the opportunity to hear his voice uh, this morning. I wanna begin reading in verse 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you've been called, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I don't know how many basketball enthusiasts we have uh, in uh, the crowd this morning. I'm not a super big NBA fan. There's really too much drama in it for me these days. But uh, I love the Olympics. uh, And uh, that means that I've uh, watched with interest over the years uh, uh, the dream teams that they were uh, originally called when the United States started playing professional basketball players in the Olympics as all the other countries have been doing uh, for years. Of course, Dream Team, the first Dream Team, I think in 1992, had uh, the the likes of Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, and many didn't think it could get much better than that. But it was in 1996 that Dream Team 2 represented the United States and uh, 
Basketball experts say that arguably that was the best basketball team that has ever been fielded at one time. There were a number of players that were on uh, the original dream team. Charles Barkley, uh, I believe, David Robinson, uh, Carl Malone was on that team, John Stockton, Scottie Pippen, and then they had a couple of new guys that ultimately would go on and make the NBA's 50 greatest players list, Hakeem uh, Elijah Wan and uh, Shaquille O'Neal. I watched uh, the early games. I remember uh, when uh, they took the court representing the United States and Something very interesting happened in one of those games when they were playing Argentina. Uh, one of the interesting things was they were actually behind early. Uh, Argentina, I think, got ahead. The score was 15 to 14. Uh, and, then, and then something uh, really, really uh, interesting happened. Some said the Argentine team shot the lights out because literally the entire bank of lights in the Georgia Dome went dark. And a technical difficulty went out, started, stopped the game. And for eight minutes, uh, the commentators were scrambling to fill the time while engineers and technicians were trying to figure out how to get the lights back on. And so they were going back and forth, uh, you know, from the, you know, the commentators from all the home base of all the Olympics. And then they would come back to the Georgia Dome to the commentators were there. And they'd go back to the home base. And that went back and forth for those what seemed to be a very long uh, period of time. I remember watching that whole scenario unfold. And at one point, they, they came back to the Georgia Dome and you had the cameras on the commentators up in their booth and, and you could see in the shadows uh, the court as well as uh, the, the players dimly that were standing on the sidelines uh, at their particular benches. And I started thinking about that. I started thinking about the, you know, the, the fact that here was the, the greatest basketball team that uh, maybe has ever been uh, on a court. A, a group of men that represented off the chart talent. They had the skill, they could play the game better than anybody. And not only that, these professionals now represented a, a whole lot of money, millions and millions and millions of dollars in the salaries that they made. And on top of that, everybody knew who they were. Even the opposing teams, it was so funny to watch how the opposing players were always asking for uh, the players on the dream team for their autographs. Everybody on the planet had their eyes on them. They, they represented the highest level of skill, the, the more money than most of us would ever be able to imagine, and renown, popularity. Everybody in the world knew who they were. But for those eight minutes, those guys were not on the court playing, they were on the sidelines waiting. And an interesting thought hit me, that these guys that represented all of this skill and all of this money and all of this renown were not 
playing the game, not because they didn't have enough skill or make enough money or nobody knew who they were, but simply because the lights were out. It's one thing for that to happen with something as trivial as a professional sports event. But listen to me, church, it's an entirely different thing when that happens in the church of Jesus Christ. And it happens all the time. It happens all the time that there are the most gifted people in the world because they have been gifted by the Holy Spirit living inside of them. People that have been resourced off the chart by the God of the universe and people whose names God knows. But yet so many of them, so many of them sometimes sitting on the sideline, being spectators instead of players, not because they don't have the ability, not because somebody doesn't know their name, not because they don't represent this immense amount of, uh, amount of spiritual resource, but simply because the lights are out. Now, I want to tell you this morning, we come to this passage of Scripture. That's what Paul's praying about. And that, beloved, listen to me, is what he is praying for. He's praying not for them to have more ability because they've, they've got all they need. Because God's resourced them. He's not praying that, that they, they, they would be worth more because they are already treasured immeasurably by the God of the universe. And he's not praying that, that God would know their names because God already knows their names. But what he's praying for is that the lights would come on in their life so they would see that. They would know that. This happens to individual believers. Maybe some of us in the room today watching online fall into that category. Maybe be individuals who would look and say, you know what, I, I love going to church. I love being a part of it. But, you know, I really don't have as much talent as so-and-so. Or I can't sing like that lady. Or I can't preach like that guy. Or teach a, a, a Bible study like my small group leader. For whatever reason. Maybe some this morning sitting and saying, you know what, I, I love what's going on there, but, you know, I, I really don't have anything to bring to the table, a contribution, because after all, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I don't have the background. I don't have the heritage. I, you know, I, I, just, I just don't know, know as much. Listen to me, the same thing can happen with churches, not just individual believers. Churches can go through seasons where they begin to see themselves more as spectators than as participants. Well, for whatever reason, maybe a difficult time church has gone through, maybe mistakes that it's made, maybe, maybe, maybe circumstances completely out of their control, the changes in demographics around them, and on and on we could go for the reasons that sometimes can lead some churches to feel like, you know what, we're just getting by. We love being on the team. We're glad for that, but we really don't have anything to bring to the table. And it's easy. It's easy in the Christian journey if we're not careful to come to the place where in this situation, 
And that's what makes Paul's words and his prayer so relevant for us today. So whether that's you as an individual or maybe you as a congregation or some segments of the congregation, I want you to look at this prayer with me. And I want you to hear the Apostle Paul pray it, but I want you to know this prayer found its way into the canon of inspired scripture because this is God's desire for us. This is his desire for us. Now, let me set it up for you just by giving you a little bit of background, okay? I want to answer, before we jump into the development of it, really three questions. You know, why is Paul praying this prayer? Well, I've already kind of told you that, but I want to show it to you in Scripture. I want to answer the question, how does he do it? How does he develop his prayer? Because that becomes really important. And then I want us to look at what exactly he is praying. Why is he praying the prayer? Well, he's praying the prayer because I think he's talking to a segment of people, and that's really important. Yes, this letter goes to the entire church at Ephesus, but Paul's... Paul's addressing a particular group. The church at Ephesus, really just like most every church on the planet, was made up of two groups. It was made up of groups of people who were saved out of a Jewish background. They had the heritage. They had the lineage. But they came to know Christ. They realized in the gospel who they were and what God was doing, and they said yes to it. There were, there were people in the church at Ephesus who had been saved out of that background. But there, were all, there was also a second group, and that's people in the church at Ephesus who had been saved out of a Gentile background or a non-Jewish background, which, by the way, would encompass probably most, if not all, of us in the room today. Paul, listen to me, come in here real close, is writing specifically to the people in the church who were saved out of a Gentile background. And that becomes really important. You know why? Because we can understand how sometimes the Gentile believers felt like second-class Christians. They felt like they were, they were on the team, but they were on the B team. Or they were on the team, but they were on the second team. Maybe it was because there were some of those Jewish Christians that held that over their, their heads. Well, you know, we, we, we were the Jews and we, you know, really were the, the first ones to, you know, to get this. Messiah came through our people. He was one of us. Maybe some of them did that. Maybe it was just their presence and the realization on the part of those Gentile background believers that, that they didn't have the heritage. They didn't have the lineage. But for whatever reason, this was a group of people that obviously felt like they didn't get the whole dose. Maybe, maybe they, they didn't know as much or they, they weren't able to do as much as those Jewish background believers. You say, well, how do we know that, Shaddix? Well, Paul says as much, chapter 2, verse 11. Just look across the page or maybe at the next page. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh. So you see, he addresses them. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles goes on. He's going to mention this a number of times. Verse 8 in that chapter, he will mention the Gentiles again and, and then uh, a little bit later in the book, but he actually addresses them. Now, once again, I think the, all the believers were reading this letter, overhearing it, benefiting it from, but that's Paul's primary focus. But maybe the place this is most evident is what comes before this prayer. 
in Paul's introduction to this book. And this so often is missed. I want you to see it there in chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. This great worship service, this doxology that he begins with, blessed be the God and Father. Of, and then our, starting right here, I want you to notice the personal pronouns. Our Lord Jesus Christ. First person, plural, who's blessed us in every, uh, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him. And you just scan down through there. We in verse four, us in verse five, us again in verse six, we in verse seven, our in verse seven, us in verse eight, twice used there, we in verse 11. So Paul uses all of these first-person plural pronouns. And you say, well, of course, because he's just talking about all believers, right? Well, look at verse 12. Uh, he says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And then look at what happens in verse 13. In him you also when you heard the word of the truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promise holy spirit you can't just ignore that you can't ignore the abrupt change in personal pronouns what's so significant about it well think about it which one was paul was he a jewish background believer or was he a gentile background believer well, he was a Jewish background believer, right? He was a Jew. He was saved out of that context. Embraced the gospel of Christ. Paul is writing as one of that crowd. And he writes to this other group. Why? Because obviously some of them were feeling like second-class Christians. They, they were feeling like second-teamers. And so you know what Paul does? He prays that they would understand that in the kingdom of God, and I want you to hear this, come in here real close. There are no second team Christians. There are no second class kingdom citizens. And Paul wants, he wants them to know it. And so he's praying that God would give strong help for them to be able to see it. That's why Paul prays this prayer. How does he do it? Well, let's get a little bit technical with you. He, pray, he, he does it, um, it basically in some progressive purpose clauses. You know what a purpose clause is, right? It's when somebody states the purpose of what they're talking about or what they just said. A lot of times in our Bibles, it's indicated by a, 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 a so that or consequently or something like that. Paul actually uses a couple of purpose clauses in his prayers, but these purpose clauses he uses are, are progressive. And what I mean by that is he prays for something so that something else will happen. Let me show them to you, beginning of verse 17. That, this is what he's praying for, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to pray for something there. But then look in the middle of verse 18. You'll find a that or so that in your English Bible there again. That you may 
No. So what's Paul doing? He's saying, I'm praying that this will happen so that this will happen. It's kind of like, you know, when we were growing up and probably for most of us, our, our mamas said to us, don't play in the street when we were going out to play. And that didn't ever make any sense because the street was the funnest place to play, right? I mean, you could run farther, the balls would bounce higher. What, what, what mama was actually saying was, don't play in the street so that you don't get hit by a car so that you don't die. Those are progressive purpose clauses. I just wish she had said that. It would have made a whole lot more sense. Who said, don't play in the street, right? Well, Paul's, Paul's telling us, he's telling us, I'm praying for this so that something else will happen. What exactly is he praying for? That brings us to the what of this prayer. And it really is the outline that I want to follow through this paragraph. This is what he prays for. He prays for spiritual illumination. You know why? Because their spiritual eyes were closed. But he prays for spiritual illumination so that it would bring them to their realization or for our purposes, our realization of something really big. And you know what that is? God's restoration. So that's what I want you to listen for. Spiritual illumination leads to our realization of God's restoration. And when you get your arms around God's restoration, it will pull you off of the bench and into the game. So let's look at the first one, spiritual illumination. Paul, of course, starts or for this reason, the reasons that I just showed you about who he's writing to, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Obviously, these Gentile believers were believers. They were true Christians. He's not talking to lost people. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And here's what I'm praying, Paul says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Now, now I want you to look at that description there for a minute and look at, look at all, of the, all of the things that speak to gaining insight or understanding or knowledge, coming to the place where, where you, you, you see something and you know something. He says, I'm, I'm praying that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. I want you to, I want you to have wisdom about this. I want this to be revealed to you, uh, Paul says. And then notice at the end of verse 17, in the knowledge of him. Let me just lean into that for a second. There are actually three words in the language of the New Testament that are all translated by the same English word, no, in our English language. And they have, they have different shades of meaning. I'll illustrate it to you this way. One, one, of, those, one of those shades of meaning is uh, to, to be aware of something, just to, you know, to become aware of something. Another one is to know by experience. You, you know it because you experience. And the third one is the, really the, the, the fullest knowledge, the deepest knowledge possible. 
So I'll illustrate it like this. Let's just say when I came in here this morning that there were some of you who were very kind. And you see that I'm getting old. And you said we need to help that guy out. So uh, that you stopped me at the door and you said, hey, Shaddix, listen, there are some steps uh, that go up to the, the platform. And you'll want to be careful on that ste- those steps so that you don't trip over Or we'll see now I know these steps are here because you made me aware of them. I'm now aware of them because you told me. But I look out across this crowd and I'm thinking there's probably some more mischievous folks in this crowd. Some of you saw me come in this morning and you said, you know what? He's a seminary professor. Let's just see how smart he is. We're going to see if he recognizes those steps and doesn't trip on. So I bebop on in here and come up and it comes time for me to, you know, to come up on the stage. And and so I I come and I, I trip over the steps. Well, now I'm aware these steps are here, not because you made me aware of them, but because I've experienced them, right? Third scenario, come in here, whether you made me aware of them or I experienced them. After I pick myself up of tripping over them, I think, man, didn't see those steps there. But you know what? Those are, those are really cool steps, really pretty carpet. And so I just take some time and I sit down and I feel the carpet and feel the, you know, how soft it is. And, you know, and I, I just notice a little bit more about the, you know, the, the, uh, uh, slope of the steps and, and, and now you know I, now I, I know these steps not because you made me aware of them not because I experienced them but because I've, I've, I've gotten to, to be familiar with them a little bit more and in Paul's writings he uses all three of those words at different times you want to guess which one is used for this word knowledge here at the end of verse 17 well it's that third one It's the deepest knowledge. It's the most intimate knowledge. That's what Paul's praying for. Praying for spiritual illumination so that they would know. They would know with the deepest knowledge possible. And in verse 18, he gets real practical and says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. The lights that come on. Your eyes open. Now, now stop right there and, and, and let me just ask you a question. Christians, believers in Jesus Christ this morning. Number one, did you know your heart had eyes? Did you know your heart had eyes? Number two, did you know that it was possible for you to be a Christian and the eyes of your heart actually be closed? You remember who he's writing to, right? Says it back up there in verse 15 and 16. He's acknowledging these are people that had come to faith. But they were sitting on the sidelines because their spiritual eyes were closed. So what's Paul doing? He's praying that their spiritual eyes would come open. That God would do a work of grace. That he would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The deepest knowledge possible. The most intimate knowledge possible. Paul's praying for that to happen. You know why? Because these Christians sitting on the sideline were living in the dark. And it happens all the time. It happens all the time. 
churches across the city, across this country, across the world. Many believers truly saved on their way to heaven, but sitting on the sidelines because their spiritual eyes are closed. So Paul's praying for spiritual illumination. He's basically praying for the lights to come on, their eyes to be open. Spiritual illumination leads, listen to me now, to our realization. It leads to the place where, okay, when the lights come on and the eyes are open, we realize something. I mean, practically think about it. If we were able to darken the windows this morning and make this pitch black in here, turned out all the lights. The only way you could get in here was kind of feel your way in as you walked in, feel the pew. You somehow make it over to your seat there and, and you sit down. You, you can't see anybody, but you hear people coming in, sitting in front of you, beside you, around you. And then maybe somebody comes in and they flip the lights on and you look beside you and say, oh, you know, it's you. And you see what color dress they're wearing or what color, you know, their uh, the bows in their hair or who it is. Well, those people were sitting there the whole time. That stuff was there. Those, those, those individuals were there. They had that stuff on. But now, because the lights are on, you, you see it. You, you realize what's been there the whole time. Well, guess what? Progressive purpose clause Paul says, I'm praying that your spiritual eyes would be open, the lights would come on. I'm praying for spiritual illumination so that you would realize some things that have been there all along. So what is he praying that they would realize? And what is he praying that we would realize? Well, you see the that there, so that in the middle of verse 18. And he says, so that you may know. Well, there's that word know again. Guess what? Different word. This is the word now for just awareness. He's already prayed. I, I want the lights to come on that you will have the knowledge of God, the in most intimate knowledge, the full knowledge of him. But Paul knows when that happens, that people are going to become aware of some things that have been there the whole time. They just hadn't seen them because they had their eyes shut. So what is it that he wants us to realize? What does he want us to know by awareness now? Well, he basically, he basically says three things. Number one, he says to these Gentile believers and he says through them to us that God saves you eternally. God saves you eternally. Look, he want, what is the hope to which he has called you? Let me just tell you very quickly, there are two words here. One is hope, one is call. Both of these words are used primarily in the New Testament in reference to our salvation. Hope for believers is something we possess right now, but we can't see it fully. We haven't realized it fully. Jesus hasn't come back. One day he's come to, and we have the hope of heaven. I spoke at a conference yesterday in Charlotte on that subject, on the subject of, of heaven. And we talked a lot about our hope, the hope that we have. And hope in the Bible for Christians is not like hope in the world. Hope in the world is a maybe, it's a might be, it's a wannabe. I hope I get that job. I hope I get a new iPhone for Christmas. We hope is something we, we it's not a done deal. It's not for sure. We just hope it's going to happen. Well, that's not the Christian's hope, is it? 
Christian's oath is not a maybe or a might be or a want to be. Listen to me. It's a certainty. It's a certainty. It's sure. We have the hope that Jesus is coming back. We have the hope that we're going to spend eternity with him in heaven. And the Bible speaks about God's calling us to that hope. And so Paul, what Paul's talking about here is he's talking about the salvation that we have, the already part of that, but the not yet that is going to come. But we hope in that. And Paul wanted the, I don't know if they were doubting their salvation. I, I don't know if they were questioning because they thought they didn't get the old dose that some of them might not make it. But Paul wants them to know, I want you to know something that's always been there. And that is that God has called you in Christ to this salvation. And it is a salvation that will never go away, imperishable, uncorruptible, Peter tells us in his epistle. It's a reality. And God's given that to you. Been there the whole time. But some of them, some of them had lost sight of it because their eyes were closed. God saves you eternally. But look at this one. He treasures you exceedingly. He treasures you exceedingly. Now, some of you need to hear this, so don't miss it. Notice the second thing there in verse 18. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, be careful here. You might be tempted to think, oh, well, I know that. You know, we've got that inheritance coming. Heaven, you just mentioned at Shaddix, you know, streets of gold, spending eternity with God. We're waiting for that inheritance. Look at the verse closely. What does it say? Is this talking about our inheritance? He says, I want you to realize what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Whose inheritance are we talking about here? We're talking about not our inheritance. We're talking about God's inheritance. Did you know God had an inheritance? I want you to think about this with me just for a moment. What is it that God has waiting on him that he doesn't already have? Well, that's a really short list. You know what? But you know what the answer to it is? You, me. Realize the only thing that God's got to look forward to in heaven is you and me seeing him face to face and us spending eternity with him. That hasn't happened yet. Now, some of us might think, eh, that's not very much. Listen to me, come in here real close. It is for him. You know why? Because he treasures those he saved. He treasures his children. He values us and, and, and looks toward the day that we get to spend eternity with him. Sometimes some of us find ourselves on the sidelines and it's a significant thing. We, we lose sight of the value that God places on us and cherishes us with. And Paul's praying for these Gentile believers. And he's saying, I'm praying for your spiritual eyes to be open, the lights to come on, because I want you to see this. I want you to know it. I want you to wake up every morning aware of it. I want you to go to bed every night conscious of it. He treasures you immeasurably. 
Members of Christ Baptist, hear the word of the Lord today. Know this. And know it as a congregation. He treasures you immeasurably. Thirdly, he resources you extraordinarily. He resources you extraordinarily. You see, there's, there's a third thing. It's in verse 19. Paul says, I want the lights to come on so that you'll become aware. You'll become aware of the hope to which you've been called. Riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And then look in verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great mind. It's like Paul's just trying to find every word in the dictionary to describe how big this is. The word greatness is the word from which we get our prefix mega. You know what mega is, right? Mega is huge. It's off the charts. Power uses the word power. This is the word from which we get our word dynamite. But dynamite in the New Testament language is not the same as our dynamite. Our di dynamite is big explosive, a lot of chaos, and then it's over. But the dynamite in this word in the language of the New Testament, it actually probably is more like the gasoline that goes in your car. There's nothing flashy about it, but it just provides an ongoing source of power. So he says the greatness of his power toward us who believe According to the working, that word is the word from which we get our word energy or energizing. It just keeps going in its effectualness. You remember the Energizer Bunny and those advertisements, they're still out there. First came on, the bunny would, you know, be playing a drum and world's falling apart around him. But here he comes just across the stage and he's beating the drum. And then the commentator says, what? Keeps on going. But if you've ever had an Energizer battery, you know that at some point the rabbit dies. Uh, but listen to me, not here, not in God's power. It keeps on going. It keeps on working. The working of his great might. That word might is the word strength. You see what I mean? He's just pulling every word he can. But don't forget what he's describing. He's describing the immeasurable power of God. Notice, according to the working of his great mind, toward us who believe. And by the way, if those were not enough, just look at the next statement in verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. I'll just say this and you can go home and chew on it. The power the resource that God has put in your life as a believer through the presence of the Holy Spirit is the same power that it took to raise Jesus from the dead. Just let that sit in there for a moment. So all these things were there all the time, and they are in the life of a believer. But one of the things that immobilizes so many Christians is that their spiritual eyes are closed. The lights are out, and they don't see those things. They don't realize them. Paul's not done. Spiritual illumination leads to our realization of God's restoration. What he describes in the next few verses is just, you know, I mean, let me just tell you, the lofty language here 
I'm not going to tell you that I begin to understand all of what he's saying here. I just know it's really big. And it encompasses the grand purpose of God in eternity. So what is it he says in this idea of God's restoration? Well, number one, he says what we've already mentioned, and that is that God raised Jesus from the dead. Okay? He tells us that in verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Number two, he raised him from the dead and he put Jesus in charge of everybody and everything uh, and everything for all time. Maybe the best way that I could describe it for you. Notice what he says, middle of verse 20, seated him, he raised him up and he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the ages to come. And verse 22, and he put all things under his feet. Once again, lots of language all describing the same thing. God raised Jesus up and he put him in charge of everybody and everything for all time. That's a lot of authority, isn't it? So God raised Jesus from the dead. God put Jesus in charge of everybody and everything for all time. And then finally, God gave Jesus to the church to restore everything. Look at it there in the middle of verse 22. And gave him as head over all things to just process that for a moment. All of what we've just said and all of what he's just said in his description of what God did in Christ. And he, he gives them to who? He gives them to the church. Our husband, our Lord, our King, our Savior. God gave him to the church. In verse 23, he says, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is where it almost gets elusive. I mean, it's just, just lofty language. Can we know exactly what he's talking about? His fullness and filling all in all? I think so when we zoom out of the book of Ephesians and look at it maybe from a 30,000 foot view. Later on in the next couple of chapters, he's going to talk about Jews and Gentiles being united, right? in one person. God bringing people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, speak different languages, and he's gonna make them one. Male and female, he's gonna make them in one body. He's gonna unite things that have a tendency to divide people in this life, socioeconomic status, among all those other things. And he's gonna bring them together, make them one for all of eternity. If you just go back, to that doxology and look at what Paul says in verse seven, chapter one. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. It's a mystery, something hidden in the Old Testament. And now uh, it's, it's been uh, revealed in the New Testament, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. He's about to tell us, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things 
on earth. The best way I know to summarize this is to say this is God putting everything back the way he intended it to be. You created me, created in the image of him. Sin's affected that. It's thwarted it. It's perverted it. And God's putting that back together. People divided. God's restoring that. His creation that is in chaos. God restoring that. And we'll usher in a new heaven and a new earth. This is God's plan. Listen, beloved. This is not about your plans. It's not about my plans. It's not about your dreams for your life or my dreams or what you think your life purpose is. Guess what? The thing that overrides those and actually brings them all together is God's ultimate purpose. It started in eternity past and will continue in eternity in the future. And that is his recreative process of restoring all things. And the apostle Paul prays. He prays that these individual believers would have their eyes open so that they would see what God has invested in them and what he's made them a part of. Giving them a purpose that's larger than themselves, giving them one that spans eternity. And you and I have the opportunity to be a part of that, the privilege, because he gave Jesus to the church. And during our life on this world, uh, on this planet, during this season, we've given the assignment to be his agents in that, have we not? We become his representatives, his mouthpiece, his hands, his feet, to leverage everything we are and everything we have to foster that agenda. Let me ask you today, are you seeing all of those things? Are you living according to them as individuals and as a church? Or is it possible this morning that for some of us, spiritual eyes are closed and we need God to do this work in us. If our eyes are open and we know these things and you've sat here and listened to all this and looked at this in the text and say, yeah, I, I know they get it. The, you know, the follow-up question is, are you living it? Are you living according to it? What God compels us to through his word today is that there would be a work of spiritual illumination in each of our lives and us as a body. And that would lead to our realization of these things and the awareness that we are part of God's restoration of all things. We're gonna have a time of response here in just a moment. Our musicians will come. I know you're used to this. Pastor Kim's gonna come and be here at the front. And so it's just a time. It's a time of response which all of us must render, even if we don't do it physically. God's word always demands a verdict. You gotta do something with this, and there are only two options, yes or no. And I wanna compel you to say yes to it today. Say yes to the truth of God's word. And if it would be helpful for you to give physical expression to that, to drive a stake in it in a moment when we, we sing together, Maybe some of you want to come, maybe make an altar out of these steps here and just kneel here briefly and pray and tell the Lord that. Ask him for this. If you, if you know, you, you look at this and say, I'm not aware of all that. I'm certainly not living it out. Ask God 
for this spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your heart would be open. Maybe you know somebody that's living in that darkness, a believer. Pray for them. Maybe you want to come and pray for them. Others of you may have something that you want the pastor to, to pray for you about. You want to come to him. Let him encourage you. So I invite you, believers in Christ, let's say yes to the truth of God's word today. Maybe some of you are here or you're watching online and you overhear this and say, man, it's not about my spiritual eyes being closed. I'm not even in the game. I'm not even on the team because I've never repented of my sin and trusted Jesus as my Savior and as Lord. I want to invite you. Let today be your spiritual birthday. Here in the room, I hope if that's what your heart's telling you and you'd like some guidance and some help with that, you come. Tell, uh, tell Pastor Kim that. Let him know that. Let him encourage you. Let him give you some guidance. Pray for you. But let's say yes to the word of God today. Father, in Jesus' name, we would say thank you for helping us with this. Thank you for putting us in the Bible. God, I know you didn't have to do that. You could have just left us in the dark, feeling our way through the Christian life. But you put this in the Bible so we would know it. We would pray it. We'd long for it. We're grateful for that. Pray right now, Lord, that you would give us grace and courage to respond in a way that honors you and helps each of us as needed, Lord, to take a step toward a full realization of all that you have done for us in Christ and all that we are in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name.